There was a story of an office manager who was complaining to his staff that he wasn't getting any respect. No one was respecting him. He was the boss, and they should be respecting him. And so to make them aware of who he was, he attached a sign in his office door that simply read, I'm the boss, to remind everyone to show him the proper respect. Later that day, he returned from lunch to find that somebody had taped a note over his sign that said, I'm the boss. That note read, your wife called. She wants her sign back. Everyone wants to be the boss. Everyone wants to be in charge. No one wants to submit. And I've noticed that in our generation today, young and old, We don't like to submit. Submission is one of the hardest things we are called to do. It calls us to let go of our personal pride. In many ways, when we submit, we are allowing someone else to win. Somehow, we have garnered the notion that submission implies losing. And no one wants to lose. And therefore, no one wants to submit. As we continue our sermon series entitled, Own Up, A Call for Personal Responsibilities, we've been looking at the book of 1 Peter and looking at the Christian life and the responsibilities that God calls us to live. And so this morning we want to talk about the Christian's responsibility to submit. If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2. As we take a look at verses 13 to 25. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 25 as we exposit this passage. If you're new to the Bible, the book of 1 Peter, it's towards uh, the latter part of your Bible. Probably a few pages. Turn with me there and put your bookmarks there. We're going to be in this book for the next few weeks. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 25. As we take a look at the responsibility we have to submit, what does that look like? How do we live this out? Let me begin by reading verses 13 and 14 of 1 Peter chapter 2. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to the governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. Peter begins by telling us to submit ourselves to those in authority. The principle is very clear. Submit to those in authority over you. And if you're taking notes, that's number one, right off the bat, number one. Submit to those in authority. Notice in verses 13 and 14, it does not specify what type of authority. Because the implication is all in authority. We are to submit to all those in authority over us. From Romans chapter 13, we know that all those in authority, especially in the context of government, are those that God has placed by his sovereign will. It doesn't matter if they are corrupt or not. In God's sovereign will, he has placed them in authority over us, and we are to submit to them. And that's got to be one of the hardest things to do. To look at an official, to look at someone who is an authority over us, and they do not do what is right. And we begin to question God, and we say, God, why in the world would you put them in authority? These are not good people. And yet, interestingly enough, the Bible is silent. The Bible simply tells us He puts them in authority over us by his sovereign will, and they are answerable to him. And therefore, our responsibility is to submit to them, not because we don't want to go to jail or we think that they are right or wrong. The responsibility for us to submit to those in authority is, as verse 13 says, for the Lord's sake. We do it because God desires us to do so for his sake. 
unless those in authority tell us to willfully disobey the laws of God, then we are to submit to them. That is our responsibility. Don't forget that. This is one of the clearest teachings in the scriptures. It is not something debatable. It's not something we can begin to justify why we should not. You may disagree with the authority over you, of the rules they set, of the laws they pass over your life. But the Bible clearly states we are to obey them unless they go against God's law. And at that moment, God's law always takes precedence over human law. And we see that in the book of Daniel, when there was an edict that said one cannot pray And Daniel continued to pray, and thus he was thrown into the lion's den. Peter continues in verse 14, and he gives the main purpose of authority and the main purpose of law. And verse 14 says, for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. The main purpose of authority in law is to punish those who do not do what is right, And to reward those who do what is good. Perhaps every government official and politician should have as their life verse, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 14. It will remind them of the purpose of authority and law. Of course, you may not feel like this is happening in our country today. But this is the ideal purpose of authority and law. A standard by which all those who have lawmaking responsibilities are to strive for, whether in government or even in your offices or even in the home. The implication even extends into the home. When you set up your family rules for your children, you are not to show favoritism one child to another. The rules you set must be fair. They should be to reward those who do good and obey and to punish those who are disobedient because we know what favoritism does. Even in business, in your family businesses, this verse, verse 14, speaks against nepotism. You know what nepotism is? Nepotism is the favoring of family members over those perhaps who are more competent. And that's why... You see family businesses, and a lot of them don't last more than two or three generations because they don't put competent people in charge. They put family members who are incompetent. And they set up rules that favor those who do not know what they're doing. And here, verse 15, that great biblical principle of what is authority and law, and the purpose of it is to encourage those who are doing well, doing good, and to discipline those who do not. This is an interesting year for me. It's a unique year in that the first time in my life, I get to vote for two heads of state in two different countries on the same year being a dual citizen. And as I look at the candidates in both countries here in the U.S., I think to myself, what an interesting slate of candidates this election cycle. I have to be honest uh, with you in my opinion This year, instead of perhaps picking the best candidates amongst great choices, I think in both countries, I may have to come down to choosing the lesser of two evils. But my solace, my encouragement, my uh, my takeaway, my comfort, is that regardless of who wins, based on the majority will of the people, my comfort is knowing that whoever does eventually win, God has placed them in his sovereign will in authority. And yes, even if Donald Trump wins as president of the U.S., I'll shake my head. But I've got to acknowledge that God has put him in authority. And I may not return back there. My solace is even they are answerable to God. Notice the phrase in verse 14. The Bible tells us those in authority are sent by him. He whom God has placed in power, God can 
just as easily remove them from power. Don't forget that. If God has put them in authority, he can just as easily remove them from authority. Remember the story of King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4? King Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest ruler of the ancient world at that time, in the pride of his heart says, I have built all of this. Does not ascribe glory to God. And immediately God turns him into a madman. And God removes him from office for a period of time until he learned about submission and humility. And just as quickly as God removed him, God put him back in a position of power. God is still at work. He puts them into authority over us. And that's how we can acknowledge that we can submit to those in authority because God has a hand in it. We are to pray for them. We are to pray for those over us, whether it's our parents, our grandparents, whether it's our employers, whether it's our government officials. Look further in verses 15 to 16 for why we are to submit to those in authority, beginning in verse 14. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Would you circle that phrase, underline it, highlight it? This is the will of God. Can there be a higher statement of purpose? No. If the Bible explicitly say, states this is the will of God, then that is what beats in his heart. That is what he desires for his children to do. They are to submit to those in authority. This is God's desire. He makes it abundantly clear. It may not make sense why we are to submit to those in authority over us, especially when we don't respect them, we don't trust them. And the answer is because God says so. It is the will of God. I've often said we don't need simply morality in this world. Values, it's important. But what's more important is the reason why we have good morals, why we do what is right. The reason we do what is right and live morally is because it pleases God. There must be a foundation and a basis for why we do good. There are a lot of people in this world who do good. Some of them do good to try to get to heaven, which they can't. But you have to come to the understanding that we as Christians live a good life and a moral life and a life according to the Scriptures because it pleases God. In that, He is well pleased. It is His will. And so when He instructs us to obey our parents, we do it because it pleases Him. We are to honor them, the Bible says, even if they are old and old-fashioned and slow and whatever other common arguments Young people have for why they don't honor their parents. Unreasonable. Not with the times. The Bible says we honor them because God is pleased. We submit to those in authority because it is the will of God. We do what is right because it pleases the Lord. I want you to listen carefully. God does not owe us a reason why he wants us to live a certain godly way. Did you hear that? God does not owe us a reason for why we should want to live a godly way. We do it because he tells us to do it. He tells us to live a holy life. And we don't tell God, well, God, give me 100 reasons for why I must be sexually pure. God can give it. But oftentimes God simply says, because it honors me. And we should take that at face value and not try to justify in our minds whether it is worth it to live like that. Just like when a parent tells a little child, your bedtime is at 9 p.m. Invariably, the child will say, why, can't we stay up a little bit later? No, your bedtime is at 9 p.m. Why? What's your answer as parents? Because we said so. Now go to sleep. 
I don't think there's any parent on this earth who when their child says, why do we have to go to sleep at eight or nine? That a parent will answer, well, you know, child, scientific studies have shown that children who sleep from nine to six a.m. get their best sleep because it matches their circadian rhythm. So therefore, go to sleep at nine. If you're one of those parents who explain to your children all that, I will give you an award for being the most patient parent out there. Most kids, when they tell other kids that their bedtime is nine and their friends ask them why, what's their answer? Because my parents say so. Perhaps that's the answer we need to give to the world. Why do you submit to authority? Our answer should be because it is the will of God. Because it pleases Him. And all the other rules out there that God desires for us to live in a godly way, we don't have to give them a reason. If the scriptures say it, then we say, because I choose to live a life that pleases God. We have made complex what God has made very simple. We want to live at His pleasure. We want to do His will. And so, therefore, in this case, we submit to those in authority. But thank God in verse 15, he does give us at least one reason. Notice the second part of verse 15. That by doing good, that by submitting to authority, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. That by submitting to authority, that by obeying the rules they set, we become a testimony to those who do not know him. By obeying the authority above us, by submitting to their laws, they have nothing to say against us, as we talked extensively about last week in our responsibility as witnesses to the world. When you stop at the red light and the world sees, they will have nothing to say against you. When you give out the proper receipt as is required by law, the world will have nothing to say against you. That you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. One of the reasons we submit to authority and obey the rules that are set up, whether we agree with them or not, is because it is a testimony to the world. A few days ago, I was driving up and down Banawi looking for a place to eat, which I often do. And I happened to come upon a new noodle store. Uh, and uh, I wanted to try it. And I had the opportunity uh, to talk to the owners. They told me they just opened up uh, two weeks ago and that they were from Hong Kong. I said, well, coming from Hong Kong, their wonton noodle soup must be very good. So as I look at their menu, uh, I was craving uh, shrimp wonton. And there it was on their menu, shrimp wonton noodle soup. And I was about to order it until I saw on their menu an item right above it that said, special shrimp wonton noodle. And that piqued my interest. What is the difference between shrimp wonton and special shrimp wonton? And so I... Of course, ask the owner because I wanted to solve this mystery in my mind. I was surprised. They were very honest with me. They said, sir, if you order the special shrimp wonton, the wonton will be all shrimp. But if you order the normal shrimp wonton, then we add pork with the shrimp. So I'm thinking in the back of my mind. Shouldn't the shrimp wonton be shrimp, all shrimp? And if you're going to add pork, you would probably call it pork and shrimp wonton. So I ordered both to see what both tasted like. <laughs> very, very good, both of them. And I, I commented to my wife, I said, what a statement about our culture today. What a statement about our environment. That something has to be branded special to be what is true. Does that make sense? Something has to be special to be true. Special shrimp meant it was all shrimp. 
Shrimp did not mean shrimp. It meant shrimp and pork. But that is a microcosm of the world we live in today. It's ridiculous that only special people do what should be normal and that which is commonplace. Note in verse 6, excuse me, note in verse 15 that the Bible tells us for this is the will of God. The implication is it is commonplace, it is normal that you do what is right because it is the will of God. Now in verse 16, Peter will elaborate on this principle of submitting to authority. And he will address something perhaps that some of you are probably thinking about right now. Well, pastor, you've talked about authority and the law. That means if it's not a rule, that means I can do it. If the law doesn't say anything about it, then I can do it. I have the freedom. For example, if there is no law that says I can't have premarital sex, then I guess it's okay. And if there's no law about living together before marriage or traveling together and staying in one room before marriage, then I guess it's okay. Peter anticipates what you are thinking, and he writes verse 16. As free, as you have the freedom, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, as a bondservant of God. The Bible tells us you are free to do what you want in the confines of the law that the law allows but that liberty should not serve as a rationale for doing what is wrong. You will have that freedom. But that freedom does not give you a license to sin. Because you must remember that you are also under God's moral authority. And he speaks to the spirit of the law. Not necessarily only to the letter of the law. Let me give you an example. If you have children, again, some children have the notion that as long as my parents don't tell me explicitly not to do it, then I can do it. So, for example, you're going out on a date with your wife and you leave your oldest son in charge. And you tell your son, you're in charge. Take care of your little brother. Don't hit him. Don't make him cry. You're in charge. So you go enjoy your day, and you come back home, and when you get home, your little younger son comes running up to you, and he is in tears. And you ask him why. Why are you crying? Because my brother locked me into the closet. And so you call your oldest son here, and you question him, and you say, Why did you lock your younger brother in the closet? Oftentimes that child will answer, well, you didn't tell me I couldn't. You only said, don't hit him, and I didn't hit him. Just locked him in the closet. That's what we do. We play these games with God. Well, God, you didn't say that explicitly. I didn't read that in the Bible. And I actually don't read the Bible, so I won't feel convicted. I can just plead ignorance that I didn't know. The Bible says... In verse 16, remember, you are servants of God. You are to submit not only to human authority, you are to submit to a greater authority. In verse 17, there is a summary of what a good citizen looks like. Peter writes, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Here in these four statements are things we are to do as a good citizen. And we, we know these. Honor, respect all types of people. Yes, we know they're uniquely created in the image of God, and we do it. Yes, love our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. They are our family members. Fear God. Yes, a healthy respect and reverence that leads to obedience. We, we know that. But then Peter puts their honor, the king. Honor someone in authority whom God has placed over you. We can often do the first three, but we hedge against the fourth. 
But here in this verse, all are equally important to God. We may be willing to do the first three, but the fourth is just as important to God. Submit to those in authority. Let's take a look at the second principle of submission as our responsibility in verses 18 to 20. Verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. The second principle of submission Peter talks about, number two, is this. Submit even when it is hard. Number two, if you're taking notes. Submit even when it is difficult, when it is hard. And here, Peter will use the example of a household servant and their master. You can equate that currently with an employer and an employee. Now, as a side note, if you're looking ahead in chapter 3, you'll see that next week we're going to talk about husbands and wives and families. For those of you whose spouses don't come to church, what a great weekend to invite them next week to come. Invite your unsubmissive wives and your insensitive husbands and let me talk to them. It's a great week to come. They will be in for a shock. I'm sure they'll be offended. And if they're offended, it's okay. Because Sunday afternoon is so happy together. Couples banquet. And there they can patch things up. See how we plan these things? <laughs> but anyways, back to the illustration. That's next week. The illustration of a servant and his master, his boss. The Bible tells us the employee is to respect those in authority even if they treat you harshly and unfairly. This has got to be one of the biggest frustrations for working men and women. Employees who are being reprimanded by their boss even when they didn't do anything wrong. And you know what? They can't fight back. They can't answer back. They can't say what's on their mind or else risk losing their job. How frustrating that must be to be wrongly accused of doing something. It's the same frustrations teenagers have. You were once a teenager, getting yelled at by your parents, being berated by them wrongly. You want to tell them, you don't understand my circumstance. You don't understand what I'm going through. You don't understand the situation. And there they are telling you the wrongs you've done. And sometimes you answer back, but you, you can't explode because you know that if you answer back, they will take away your privileges. That is frustrating. And it is this frustration that Peter's talking about in verse 18. Be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. Now, now Peter does acknowledge that there are employers who are good and who are gentle. And it's easy to submit to men and women like that. But to the unreasonable bosses and employers, it's hard. But the Bible says we are to submit to them even when it is hard. And he tells us why in verses 19 and 20. Look with me. For this is commendable. If because of conscience towards God, one endures grief, suffering wrongly. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your fault, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. The Bible says in verses 19 and 20, it is commendable to God when you submit to authority, even when it is difficult, when you are suffering unjustly, it is commendable. Peter uses the example of unjust suffering. When you've been wrongly accused because of a wide variety of reasons, perhaps someone is jealous of you, perhaps someone is spreading rumors about you, someone doesn't like you, the Bible says we are to patiently bear with it, even putting up with it, knowing that it is unjust, undeserved. 
especially when it is someone in authority over us treating us in that manner. In verse 20, Peter says, if you're being punished because you deserve it by someone in authority, then you deserve it. You don't get any special rewards from God because you deserve it. But Peter's talking about submitting to those in authority even when you are being unjustly condemned. And then you begin to suffer for your words and action. And you submit to the ramifications of what your goodness leads to. Again, he closes verse 20 with these words, it is commendable before God. How in the world do we submit when someone is unreasonable, when it is difficult, when it is hard? We do it because the Bible tells us in that God is pleased. God is a God of justice and His justice will come. But in the meantime, as a testimony to the world, we are to submit to those in authority. And let me make a side note here, because some of you may take this principle and apply it wrongly. Now listen carefully. This does not mean if someone is abusing you, someone is beating you, emotionally abusing you, or physically abusing you, that you are to take it and stay in that situation. If you are a spouse and you are a child who is in an abusive relationship, both physically and emotionally, please leave that situation and inform the proper authorities. This is not the right application to this principle of submitting even when it is hard. This is a situation in the context speaking of an employee and their employer. Undeserved suffering is very difficult. After one of the services, I received a text from a church member who said, Pastor, what you have shared is very difficult to apply in the corporate world. And I texted back, I know. I've been in the corporate world. I know. I know how unfair it can be. And may God give you the grace to live out the principles he has shared in the scriptures. It's difficult to submit when you are unjustly suffering. And that's why Peter gives us something to look forward to. When we're going through those times, even in the corporate world, even in your families, even as a citizen of this country, Peter points us to an example. And he points us to the example, the ultimate example of Jesus Christ in verses 21 to 25. He points to one who patiently endured unjust suffering. You see, number three, the ultimate example of submission is Jesus Christ. The ultimate example of submission is Jesus Christ. Look at verse 21. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. We are called to follow the example of Jesus Christ and how he handled unjust suffering, how he submitted to the authority of God the Father, how he submitted to human authority and allowed himself to be chained and taken away by the Roman guards. How he was wrongly accused by the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin and even one of his own when Judas kissed him. Yet the Bible tells us he was silent. That is the ultimate example of submission. And we are to follow in lockstep with that example. Did Jesus deserve it? Absolutely not. Verse 22 speaks of this. Who committed no sin, 
nor was deceit found in his mouth. Peter quotes from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9, that great passage on the suffering Savior. Jesus committed no sin before or during his suffering, in words or in action. This is the ultimate example of submission in a situation of complete unjust suffering. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21 reminds us, He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. He could have fought back. It was well within his right as God the Son, God himself, to retaliate, threaten, remind them of who he was as the Son of God. But look at verse 23, the reaction of Jesus. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. In this great injustice, Jesus did not retaliate or threaten the guards who were there. You know, the Bible tells us that Jesus could, with one word, call down the legions of angels who were there, waiting at his beck and command. With one word, all of those guards would have dropped dead. All the members of the Sanhedrin would have dropped dead. All those who opposed him, all those who spit at him and jeered at him and put the crown of thorns in his head would have dropped dead. With one utterance of his voice, that is the authority of the Son of God, God himself. But the Bible tells us he did not threaten, he did not retaliate. How? How could he not do those things? Verse 23. He committed himself to the Father, to God the Father, who judges righteously. He committed knowing that at the end, the ultimate judge is God himself who sees all and will judge righteously. Perhaps that gives us a clue of how we can submit to those in authority, especially when we are being treated unjustly. At the end, the ultimate judge sees all and he will judge righteously. But more important, verse 24, is the result of this great act of submission. Look with me. Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Jesus' submission in the face of unjust suffering allowed him to bear our sins on the cross that we might have righteousness. The suffering of the Savior leads to our salvation. Drill that down in your head. The suffering of the Savior, the submission and suffering of the Savior leads to your salvation. Peter quotes from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, by whose stripes you were healed. Did you ever equate the two? It is through submission and suffering that you and I receive salvation. Verse 25. For you were like sheep gone astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Christ did not only provide salvation. He gives us the opportunity through his submission and sacrifice to allow us to come back to him as sheep who have gone astray, returning to the shepherd who takes great care of us and to the overseer of our soul, the one who brings guidance to us. 
And this example of submission by Jesus reminds us that we have a responsibility as well. And it is our responsibilities as followers of Jesus Christ to submit to authority. Both earthly authority and heavenly authority. We are to submit not only to earn the favor of God, but submission reminds us of what Christ did on the cross. It reminds us of salvation. It reminds us of the cross. How do we apply this? Every time you have to do what you don't want to do because the law requires it, even if the law is unjust, even if the government is corrupt, you are to do it. And so when you have to sign that check to pay the BIR, and you do it begrudgingly, and you don't want to do it, and you're angry because you know or you think you know where your money will go to, often to the pockets of others, I want you to be thinking about the cross. Hard, isn't it? No one's ever told you to do that. That when you willingly submit to do something you don't want to do, that it should bring your mind to the cross. But that's exactly what Peter is saying. Remember what Christ did on the cross in the ultimate example of submission and see why you can't submit. It's hard. I don't speak from an ivory pulpit. In a few months, I've got to do taxes again. As I mentioned, being a dual citizen, I get the privilege of voting in two countries. But you know what the drawback is? I have to pay taxes in two countries. There is no rule of law in reciprocity between America and the Philippines. So I have to pay my Philippine taxes here. And then on the same amount, I must pay U.S. taxes. And there are times, let me tell you, it is a struggle for me. And I get angry. And I say, this should not be. I'm here as a pastor missionary. Why do I have to pay taxes in America and I don't even get to use those facilities there? Why am I paying double taxes? It irks me. Sometimes, even as a normal human being, I've often thought, I wonder who's going to audit me from the IRS all the way here in the Philippines. You know, if I fudge some figures, they won't know. And I can justify in my mind that I already paid the taxes here. I'll just report a little over there. It's a struggle. But I've got to warn myself as well and remind myself, no, Steve, you know the rules. You know what your tax attorneys have told you. There is no escape valve. You must pay it. And so I have to pay it begrudgingly, trust me. And it's hard to think that when you sign that check, that you can think of the cross. But that's exactly what the Scriptures wants us to do. Whenever we're called to do something that we don't want to do, but it's the right thing to do in submission to human authority over us, then remember the cross and the silence in which Jesus did it that resulted, the Bible says, for your salvation and mine. I struggle with these messages because it hits right here as well, me. But there was a song that came to mind, uh, an old Negro spiritual. I don't know if you're familiar with Negro spiritual songs, uh, but Negro spirituals were written mostly in the late 1800s, early 1900s, when slaves from Africa were brought over to work in the southern plantations of white men. And they were not treated well. You know that from history. They were purchased property. And as every day they would go and pick in the cotton fields of the deep south, 
they would sing to make their day go by a bit faster and a bit more bearable. And they would write these songs. And many of these songs, which we call Negro spirituals, are often sung today in churches. Simple words, great theology. And the song that came to my mind this week was the song, Nobody Knows the Trouble I've Seen. Do you know that song? I'm not going to sing it for you. But let me tell you what it says. It goes something like this. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows my sorrow. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. And they would sing the song over and over. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows my sorrow. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. These were men and women who had no hope. If they had children, their children were slaves as well. These were men and women who could not complain about the hours of work they had and the beating son of the Old South. Because they knew if they spoke up, they would be beaten and whipped, perhaps even killed. And so the only thing they could sing out and cry out in the cotton fields of that era were those simple words, nobody knows the trouble, nobody knows my sorrow, but God does. And I think they knew a depth of theology that many of us do not know. They understood the cross of Christ in, in a deep way that we who are not being persecuted do not know. Don't you know that oftentimes those who are most persecuted are those who have the deepest walk with God? And the correlation is because they understood the deep persecution that Jesus went through and they could identify with it. And yet in His submission, they could also do the same. And they found grace in that. And I'm not paying, praying for persecution for you. I'm just simply saying that what you and I go through, when we think about the cross, it will challenge us to be able to do it. You know how they ended this song? This song, Nobody Knows the Trouble I've Seen. They ended the song with the words, Glory, Hallelujah. They would shout it out, glory, hallelujah. You are a slave working 14 hours a day. How in the world can you shout out, glory, hallelujah? They were able to do so because I believe they understood the great theology of the cross. They saw in their life a temporariness that was leading towards the eternality of heaven. And it is in that that they glorified God. It is in that they could shout hallelujah. So don't tell me the problems that you have of how hard it is to do what is right especially in submission to authority. Do it. And for your comfort, remember the cross of Christ. Remember the ultimate example of submission. Never forget that we as Christians were given a different set of expectations to follow. And that includes a responsibility to submit to authority. To submit when it is difficult, when it is hard. To submit when there is unjust suffering. It is a reminder that whatever we don't agree, we look to the unjust suffering of Christ on the cross in submission to God the Father that resulted in our salvation.
So when it is hard, and I know it is hard, trust that God knows what He is doing when He tells us how we are to live. Because He has that right. And He may not have to give us an exact reason why. Because He showed it to us on the cross. And that should be enough for us. We will sing the song as a song of response. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. I chose this as a song of response because I love the first verse. When we struggle to trust Him, when He commands us to submit to authority, when we don't understand why, we simply echo the words of this writer. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take Him at His word, just to rest upon His promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is a good reminder even to me that sometimes I do not agree with what is written in the scriptures. I cry out to you, as many do, you don't understand the country in which we live. You don't understand, Lord, the circumstances in which we are part of. But thank you for the reminder that you do understand, that you do know. And yet you still call us to live in submission, for this is the will of God. Help us to take your word at face value. Help us to understand that when the sovereign God calls us to live, we should answer with yes. Help us to understand the profoundness of when you tell us this is my will, that we actually do it. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you that you give us the example through Christ by which we can direct our focus and set our sights in alignment to the cross so that when we begin to waver whether we should or should not submit and do what is in accordance with the law, when we see what you did on the cross, it pushes us to do what is right. May your word continue to work in the hearts of men and women this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.